More than half of all companies globally are family-owned or operated. Family businesses contribute 70% of the world's GDP and account for 65% of jobs. Their voices are important. Their stories must be told. Brought to you by the award-winning publication, Tharavat Magazine. This is the Family Business Voice with your host, Ramya Elagami. The Food Guys, delivering positivity. While most entrepreneurs find success filling a demand, Chris Mittelstadt created one. Over the last two decades, he has grown the Fruit Guys, turning office fruit delivery into a national phenomenon. Developed in part to improve the unhealthy routines of dot-com office workers, the Fruit Guys pioneered quick and efficient access to better alternatives in a culture subsistent on caffeine, chocolate and soda. After 20 years of tenacity, creativity and perseverance, the Fruit Guys have earned the favor of thousands of businesses across the United States. We had the opportunity to sit down with Chris, founder and CEO of The Fruit Guys, to discuss origins, both sides of cyclical economics, and the future of his family business. Enjoy this episode with Chris. You know, Chris, I like to start with the beginning because I think it's just always great to hear it in the words of the entrepreneur. Can you tell us a little bit more about what moved the foundation of Fruit Guys? How did it come into being? Sure. Let's see, I, I was relatively newly married and living in San Francisco in uh, 1997, and I was in between jobs. I had worked here in San Francisco since the early 90s, doing sort of newspaper advertising sales for an alternative weekly called the San Francisco Bay Guardian. And I was looking for something on sort of the creative side of advertising and marketing. And as I was interviewing for jobs, I had taken a temp job at the Fairmont Hotel in the basement in the business services office. And I, you know, back in 1997, you know, faxes were still the thing. So I was <laughs> basically the fax boy and I was getting faxes from people and putting them in envelopes and then running up and I would slip faxes under the door of <laughs> Marilyn Quayle, you know, was there and David Crosby and all these people that were staying at Fairmont while I was there. You know, it was about this time that my wife and I realized that she was pregnant with our first child, our, our son-to-be. For me, that really motivated the clock to start ticking for me in terms of moving quickly to try to to try to do something uh, and mm-hmm. get out of what I would consider the stuck situation that I was in. Mm. Um, when I was in college, I had been entrepreneurial in that I had run a painting franchise for college pro painters outside of Philadelphia where I grew up. And so I, I wasn't afraid of doing something entrepreneurial, but I just didn't really know what to do. Mm-hmm. So I called a friend who was pushing a coffee cart at Montgomery Securities in downtown San Francisco at the time. And this was really the beginning of the, the first dot-com wave. And he said, you know, everybody down here is working really hard and they're drinking lots of coffee. And back then they were, mm-hmm. you know, drinking Jolt Cola and eating chocolate covered espresso beans and uh, saying, hey, we really, you know, if you could bring something healthy, that would be great. So I started bringing 
experimenting with bringing fresh fruit to offices. Mm-hmm. And we had a little apartment in, in San Francisco's North Beach neighborhood. It was a little one-bedroom apartment. My my pregnant wife looking on and a, a friend of and I basically packaged up fruit into handmade wooden crates that we had made ourselves with our the Fruit Guys logo stenciled on the side and my home telephone number stenciled on the side at the time. <laughs> and we started making deliveries into uh, offices in the Embarcadero Center, which is really the, the first set of buildings that we called on to try to get new accounts. So our first delivery day was in early February of 1998. The business grew. The guy that had started with me early on, he sort of you know exited the business. He wasn't interested in, in continuing to grow it with me. So I was running it pretty much by myself from about September, October of that year of 1998 on. And you know my son had been born in May. So we've got a new baby and fledgling business, and I'm working pretty much midnight to 5 p.m. every day. It was just physically taxing. And, and at this mm-hmm. time in the business, you know, we we didn't raise any money, so we're really surviving on what we can make in a week, and and we don't have really any capital resources. So things like, you know, we didn't even have enough capital to buy a truck. So I was renting U-Haul trucks by the day, wow. and I would go down and rent a U-Haul truck at like. 5 p.m. before their shop would close. And then I'd basically keep it overnight in the neighborhood. And then I would buy fruit, load it up, package stuff, make the deliveries, and then try to return it before the end of the day if, if I wasn't in need of it. It was just a, a tough time. And the business wasn't really making money. I mean, the first, really the first year to two years, the business really didn't make any money. My wife was working as a journalist at the time. So she was supporting us as we were getting the business off the ground. you know. And then by year three... The business was finally sort of large enough. We sort of crested a million dollars in sales. I think we did something like 180,000 the first year and 420,000 or something in 1999. We did Mm. just about a million dollars in 2000. And I was thinking, you know, wow, this is amazing growth. The business is growing really fast. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm really good at this. I've, I've figured this out. And, you know, we've got all these amazing clients. I mean, we were serving eBay when... You know, there were 12 people there and, you know, Pierre was sitting there programming. We delivered to Napster when we had to like, you know, do a secret knock on the door to leave the box there because they were in sort of stealth mode. I mean, so we had all these really early fascinating dot-com companies that were our clients early on. And I kind of got a little ahead of myself and I, and I had heard that this company called Webvan was going to go out of business. And they had these beautiful trucks. If, if you're around back then, they had these beautiful refrigerated trucks. Mm-hmm. And I needed more trucks, and I, but I, I didn't have a lot of money. So I was able to finally take out my first large bank loan for almost $100,000. They were selling them really cheap. I mean, these were like 80 dollars trucks that they were selling for, I think I picked them up for fifteen dollars or $16,000 a piece. Mm-hmm. So I bought five of them. I thought I was really smart. And in like six months after I bought those trucks, the economy fully collapsed and mm, the dot-com gosh. crash happened. And and because we were really only serving the Bay Area back then, we lost like 50% of our accounts. I mean, all of our customers were in the Bay Area, so all of our risk was here. And all of a sudden, these trucks that I thought were going to be a savior for my business in terms of growth were this just anchor weight chain around my neck. And it was just mm. like all of a sudden, I couldn't. I was having a hard time making the monthly payments on them. We also had twins in 2000. My wife had stopped working. So we were relying fully on the business to support us. And all of a sudden, the business couldn't make money. I had to lay off half of my staff. Mm. I had to really accept that I needed to go back and not think of myself as a CEO anymore, but think of myself as a delivery driver and go back to where I was three years prior, where I was going to be working midnight to 5 p.m. pretty much every day. Plus, 
we're really not throwing off any cash. So I'm, I'm living off of credit cards on top of the debt we have to the bank for the trucks. You know, some of the most difficult, but also in retrospect, the most wonderful moments of my marriage with my wife, Pia, came out of that difficulty. And I remember coming home one night after working a, like a 16-hour day, and there's Pia sitting in the armchair with the, the breast friend, which is like this platform you rest babies on when you're nursing them. And like both yeah. of the babies are nursing at the same time. And like she's just with sort of like a zombie stare you know, licking envelopes and stuffing our billing statements in the envelopes to send out to our customers. And it's like, this was just sort of the reality of our family business at the time that we really had to get through and survive this and in order to get through. And and we did. And, and something wonderful but crazy ended up happening out of that is that, you know, because we sort of were able to survive that and, and hold on long enough, as the economy recovered, what ended up happening was a lot of people that had lost their jobs in the Bay Area during the dot-com crash, they had become aware of us and then they moved back home or they moved to other locations around the country where they could get work. And we started getting phone calls from people saying, hey, I used to work for this company in San Francisco. I'm now back in New York. I can't get what you do out here. Could you please ship me a box of fruit? And mm. so we started actually experimenting with shipping fruit. And what we realized is we had sort of grown by accident this kind of fan base of customers that just liked what we did. And they actually were the ones that really started bringing us to other cities through their inquiries around if we could, we could help them with fruit in those areas. So what was, what was a horrible moment and an almost catastrophic moment and a moment of, of near bankruptcy and you know, complete insolvency ended up mm-hmm. turning into the seeds of what later would actually become success. A few things really that I'd love to ask you, and, and thank you for sharing the story, Chris, and so so candidly as well, because I think it, it's great to hear you being so straightforward about the difficulties that you encountered as well. I think particularly interesting, I find the part where you, you mention having to go back from becoming that or being that CEO back to basically being the delivery guy for your business. And I was just wondering, how did you get through the day to day there? Like, you know, how did you motivate yourself? Because I do know that this particularly would be the moment where a lot of people would have just given up, right? Like, because it is a lot to take, not just in terms of how much you work, but also ego wise, I guess that is one of those really big tests for any entrepreneur to face, right? Like, can you actually get over yourself and sort of accept that your role has changed once again? And it feels like a step back. So can you tell us a little bit more about mindset here, Chris, around that time? You know, in a weird way, when I look back on my life, I think that I was lucky in kind of the way I was raised in that, you know, my dad was actually a, a business professor and he was a professor at the Wharton School of Business at University of Pennsylvania, where I grew up outside of Philadelphia. And I did a little goofing off at the end of high school and my grades didn't work out the way I wanted to. And I couldn't get into a lot of the schools that I had applied to and thought perhaps that I might be able to get into. And I, I, um, I think I, because my dad was a business professor, I actually grew up kind of feeling like I never knew enough and like mm-hmm. I never could know enough. And because of sort of my end of high school experience where I failed a couple classes and was like, you know, maybe I'm not the academic that I thought I might possibly be. Mm-hmm. It actually, I think, kind of set me up. I'm not sure if it's humility as much as self-doubt at the time that actually has been very helpful to me. And what's been helpful to me about it 
is that in those moments where I have to say, I've got to change roles, I don't necessarily naturally come at it from a place of status. It's more like I come at it from a place of, well, this is just what has to be done. And who am I not to have to do that? Right. I mean, like, that's actually what ends up coming up for me is like, well, hey, yeah, if I don't work hard, nobody's going to do it for me. And, Mm. and I know that I'm not really, I know that I'm not the smartest person in the room every day. And, and I think I grew up feeling that way. Right. So like, for me, that was actually in, in retrospect, fairly helpful, because I'm like, well, I mean, I don't deserve this other position unless these other things are actually properly managed and, and, and attended mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. and the reality. So, so I think it's made me fairly pragmatic in what has to happen. It also makes me fairly like, I think now as the business has gotten bigger, it, it makes me fairly quick to call out kind of the BS that, mm-hmm. that I think most of us fool ourselves with around title or position rather than the outcome of the work or the, mm-hmm. or the necessity of the work that has to be addressed. And that's one of the things I do see a lot of times, you know, in organizations as they grow is that a lot of times people kind of throw their own roadblocks in front of themselves because of some perceived notion of what they should be doing, can be doing, can't be doing, Mm -hmm. shouldn't be doing, all of Mm -hmm. those kinds of things. And it's uh, such an important discussion, isn't it? Like I'm some of the most successful entrepreneurs I've spoken to have always maintained a firm, leave your ego at the door philosophy. And it has invariably led to success in many areas of their lives, actually, which is a, a very interesting ability to have, I think, coupled with the pragmatism that you mentioned. But as you said, like, so you very modestly refer to the, the business now being bigger, it's actually uh, doing very well today. So can you tell us a little bit more about Fruit Guys as it operates today and how this sort of like, you know, the delivery service is just spanning, obviously, a much bigger, much bigger geography than just the Bay Area that it did at the beginning? Yeah, we're, we're a national company now. We have 15 locations from which we produce product. Our, part of our, we've, always, we've never raised money. And one of the reasons we've never raised money is because we've always wanted to remain independent and be able to kind of do what we want to do. Mm. We're very highly motivated around charity. So we have sort of two thoughts around how we want to see the world change. Um, one of them is supporting small independent agriculture in the United States. So the strategy of us continuing to open local hubs is Mm -hmm. to be able to buy from as much local produce and work with as many local small farms Mm -hmm. in a given region. And of course, in season, like our Chicago hub, they're not in season year round like California is. But in terms of being able to pull from local product, we we do move our own product from other regions like California into Chicago when um, when when it's winter and things like that. But we do try to buy from as much local ag in those regions as we possibly can and support local farms. I'm deeply concerned about the consolidation and the large financial business oversight and purchasing of of agriculture in the United States. And Mm -hmm. it's important to us to think about agriculture being something that's a a viable business for people that are actually living in those communities and contributing to those communities. Because I think it makes a very strong and healthy country and democracy if we do that. So that's that's something we're really interested in, and it supports a strong food system. So, so that's one. The other is giving away food. So, a significant percentage of our fruit that we buy from farms doesn't meet the visual inspection quality standards that we hold to put in the box. It's mm-hmm. still a great piece of fruit. It just might be misshapen or have a mm-hmm. branch mark or something on it. So, we actually, instead of selling that to a secondary marketplace, which we could do, 
we choose to give that away for free to organizations that feed the hungry across the United States. And we give away millions of servings of fruit a year to organizations that feed the hungry across the U.S. So part of our growth as we have expanded is not just a business mission, but it's actually sort of what we consider sort of our, our, our mission as a business to try to think about how we can be paying it forward and giving back in the way that we think we can affect change. And that's mm-hmm. really around hunger and around sort of small farm communities. So um, I say that because our growth then becomes very conscious around mm-hmm. not just growth for growth's sake, but growth for the sake of the sustainability of the business, but then also the contribution that it can give beyond just the business metrics itself. So I'm hearing a lot of very purpose-driven strategy, and obviously it's the right time for that as well, because as we know, it's not just businesses that need to change, but businesses also need to change in response to what consumers demand today of businesses, which is that authenticity and transparency. So tell us a little bit more about your your customers, really, the customers of Fruit Guys here, Chris. I mean, do you feel like, you know, there's a heightened demand now for creating a workplace where health is prioritized? Hence, you know, Fruit Guys services would be more in demand than before. I mean, do you see a big, big change in that awareness from when you guys started out? Or do you feel like actually that that actually demand would have always been there. It's just been accentuated by the fact that your service today is available. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, we legitimately created the industry of delivering fruit to offices. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, it didn't exist before we came up with the concept. And we've been copied now globally by lots of different companies. And I would say like for the first 10 years, if you look at our sales growth for the first 10 years, we were really trying to just get people bought into the concept. Mm-hmm. And then the, the the second 10-year period, people got bought into the concept. We grew faster. We started having the ability to have partnerships with companies that wanted to bring us in. You know, I mean, it just all of a sudden really started. It, we could see that there was a change in the perception of the industry mm-hmm. in terms of this idea of, well, well, wait a minute, why can't I bring a perishable product like fruit into an office as long as I can rely on a service that manages it for me and can make sure that they're bringing stuff that's ripe and they're bringing Mm -hmm. stuff that changes with the season. So people are experiencing it and they're giving education around it. And, you know, all of those things that we do were necessary to help people understand how to move from just a pack of chips that is shelf stable and doesn't change ever. And therefore you don't need complications of management around that to having a system that allows you to manage something like a perishable in your break room. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that it's also, though, a, a fact that the, the workplace in itself is changing or has changed a lot, right? Oh, like yeah, over the last definitely. 20 years, especially like, you know, a lot of people attribute this or <laughs> I should maybe say blame this on, on millennials entering the workforce. I'm not so sure that it's not just a normal evolution, really. But there's also this trend of the gig economy sort of really taking off very much. So people starting to an increasing amount of people working from home. So often has become decentralized in many ways in many industries. Do you feel like this is going to potentially disrupt Fruit Guys' model and approach? I mean, it could. It's a really, and we think about that a lot. I don't think offices are going to go away. I mean, I think that, you know, there's always going to be a place where people are going to need to gather um, mm-hmm. in, until we are completely digitized as personalities, right? I mean, at some <laughs> point, and I say that jokingly, but um, I, I, people are still going to need to gather. So there'll be a place to commune together in that way that I think is important. And I think we'll be in support uh, there for those companies that, that need us for that. We have done projects with companies for distributed workforces where we have some smaller products 
where on a monthly basis and in conjunction with them, the way that they're thinking about things, we can actually help them create culture. Because really what food is, mm-hmm. is, is the ability to create culture and communication. Mm-hmm. So beyond just the health of it, there's multiple other multiple facets of what we do that, that are helping to bring companies and cultures together. So the ability to share a small farm story by getting a small box with nine pieces of fruit in it to an individual once a month can also create the same kind of dynamic of going in every week and seeing fruit in your break room, especially for those people that are working off-site. And part of that is just finding a way to then help the company communicate through our offering what they're trying to communicate in terms of their culture. Right. And that's, right. that is something we've experimented with. And I do think that'll become more prevalent as we grow. And that's a product development for us that I think is helpful. And so after 20 years in business and three kids on and a lot of ups and downs, what does your wife Pia think about the entrepreneurial journey and how does she, how does she see it today? And how do your kids see it today? They grew up with this, right? Like, so that must be an interesting perspective they get on it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, we talk about it, like even with a family business, I really want them to make their own decisions about what they want to do. And, and if they're interested in being involved, then they have to kind of go through the normal channels of that anybody would go through to be involved. But I also don't want them to feel pressure to mm-hmm. follow this path. I mean, I, I want them to feel excited by the world and engaged by the world to follow the path they are joyful and, um, you know, excited about. You know, there there are some conversations we have or at different times around the fragility of kind of what we do um, mm-hmm. in that when we went through the Great Recession, that was also really hard. And they mm-hmm. they understood the stress of that because we because we were living it. Right. And yeah. like, you know, we didn't we didn't have to have any layoffs during that time. But we did we did have a lot of stressors and they were well aware of that. And, you know, so that was I think that's hard for them to see sometimes. But but it also gives them a sense of realism about what it takes, I think, to make to make things work. I do have two other partners, I should say. I mean, I in 2001, a friend of mine who had sold a business and was looking for something to do, Eric, he came on as a, as a partner in Fruit Guys and has been a partner ever since. And then my sister, Erin, who um, helped us grow our East Coast operation, she then later came to the West Coast and is our COO and she's a partner as well. So, so I've got a number of people that I'm constantly bouncing ideas off of and thinking about the business with at sort of a macro level as well too that allow us to that allow us to run it as a family business. You know, I mean I consider, you know, Eric family and and Aaron is family and and, and my wife as well. So it's like we have this very tight management group now that's really helping to drive the business. And a lot of our conversations do circle around this this experience of how are we serving customers? How are we staying competitive in the marketplace? How are we keeping up and evolving with changes in the world? And at the same time, how are we doing all of that and trying every day to live our values and and contribute back to the world that we want to see evolve in front of us? It's it's really like, I'm not sure how you feel about like, you know, looking at these things when you're looking back like that. Like, I think entrepreneurs very rarely get the occasion to think back of everything that they've already done. And, And it feels like it's already a huge achievement where you've come from and where you've gotten now with Fruit Guys. But Chris, do you have still a lot of stuff that you that you feel like, oh, well, you know what, this is still something we really want to achieve with Fruit Guys specifically, or like, you know, something that you really wish for, for the company, where you're like, that's still a very, very clear goal for our future. I feel like an element of sustainability these days is to constantly think about how the business has to change and evolve. So I don't, I don't feel at least 
like we've gotten to a place of success, even though from a technical standpoint, sure we have, we're a sustainable business. We've got 160 employees. We're, you know, continue to grow off of the profitability we have in business. All those things are there, but I don't feel safe, nor do I ever feel completed Mm -hmm. in that it's, it's a finished project. And that's actually what I've come to realize is there, there's kind of beauty and art in that, that I, that I actually enjoy where in the past, I think it would just stress me out. And, and what I've come to realize is it's actually kind of like, you know, watching a constantly moving canvas and thinking about how you're adding to it or not adding to it or, or playing with it in a different way. And again, we have to be responsible in the way we do that so that we don't hurt the things that are stable and that we, that we need to make sure maintain to keep the business. I don't want to be destructive in that. But it does give you the ability to build off something, which I think is really fun. And I think it also kind of keeps the creative edge of, of what I'm doing alive. Oh, Chris, that's really lovely. Thank you so much for this interview. This has been very, I think it's been very encouraging what you've been saying for, especially for other entrepreneurs, right? Like we were all in the same boat, but somehow isolated from each other. I think it's always very encouraging to hear of that kind of resilience. And obviously, like, you know, your business has so much purpose and it's it's wonderful to hear that you found a success, even if you can't see it or won't see it, or like if you can't really feel it or relax around it, but it's definitely there and we can see it. And we're happy to share the story with our readers. Oh, thank you. No, I really appreciate the time. Thank you for listening to the Family Business Voice. Subscribe to our channels now on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, or Spotify to be notified of our weekly episodes.